episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. Nowhere do you get more brutal feedback than in an academic conference. But know, entrepreneurs complain a lot about getting feedback from VCs. VCs are like, you know, care bears compared to <laughs> academics. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Alan, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me, Sylvan. You're the co-founder and CEO at Sportacademy, a digital-first institution bringing scalable and measurable learning to the corporate world. Before we talk about your company, I actually want to start with your personal background. So you were born and did your bachelor's in Mexico, and then you chose to pursue your master's and PhD at EPFL here in Switzerland. What was the reasoning about for you coming to Switzerland? Well, first off, I did a kind of old-fashioned bachelor degree, so five years, so kind of, and then mechatronics engineering. And my first job was at ABB, which is actually kind of... Yeah, right around the corner. Right yeah. around the corner here, which is also always fun to see. Um, and I wanted to do something kind of more in terms of education, mm -hmm. and I applied to different places. And I had a very, very good friend who actually had studied at EPFL during his Erasmus, yeah. and he really suggested that I, that I apply there. And I did at the last minute, and I got in, and kind of he convinced me that I should definitely kind of pursue that path. And I thought I'd never been in Switzerland, actually. I arrived to... <laughs> that, that's quite a move then, right? I arrived to Switzerland for the first... I've been in Germany, different, different parts of, of Europe, but never in right. Switzerland. And I spoke some German at the time, mm -hmm. but no French whatsoever. Uh, so it was also kind of a, a bit of a, an adventure, but definitely it paid jump off. into the cold water. I definitely did. <laughs> what was your first impression of Switzerland when you arrived here? Well, I arrived in Geneva, and in my mind, I was kind of arriving in, in kind of kind of in a German type country. Yeah. And when I arrived and landed in Geneva and took the train to Lausanne, I was like, okay, this does not look like <laughs> like Germany at all. Again, right. I've never been here. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was interesting. It was exciting. It was scary. Um, but again, I think if I follow the red thread of my life, I've kind of done these weird, strange jumps from one to the next, and kind of, I get a kick out of the, exactly. <laughs> the excitement of the newness. And you also did so because then during your PhD, you actually started a company. You also raised seed funding, put together a team, etc. but then mm -hmm. also realized that it was too early. So you basically took the jump too early for the market, basically. What were your first entrepreneurial learnings out of that experience? Well, I think... Um, we were looking for something to do with the specific technology. We were very much technology-driven mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, it was the first Google phone that had near-field communication, and I thought that was really cool. Right. And this was, and we were aiming for iPhone 4 to have the same thing. We were yeah. completely wrong, by the way. It wasn't until <laughs> iPhone like 10, I think. Um, and then we're like, okay, there's got to be some really cool applications here. Mm -hmm. And we looked at marketing and how we could bridge kind of offline and online marketing. And uh, we built an entire product around it. Mm -hmm. 
without getting much feedback from anybody. You were just convinced that this was a great idea to pursue, right? Exactly, without which was really testing. totally wrong and completely yeah. what I, te I guess what I teach my students nowadays. Um, but we were really, really into this. Sure. And and we plugged in LinkedIn, we plugged in no Twitter, Facebook into our application, which again was not very common back then. The APIs mm -hmm. were all over the mess. We had ring, we would build geofences around shops. We had a lot of very kind of sophisticated stuff for 2013. Again, nobody gave us any feedback yeah. along the way. So that was the big learning. Go out there, validate it, and ask for feedback earlier than you Quickly, did. Quickly, yeah. We built the whole thing without... Then we were going around shopping it around. But again, it wasn't... Right. We could have done this uh, a bit more lean startup. Which should have been yeah. a different way of doing it. And I also wonder, you know, this jumping into the cold water, testing new things and, and launching new ventures... Where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from? Do you have any role models in your family or who inspired you to become an entrepreneur in the first place? My father was an uh, entrepreneur once or twice in his life um, and failed. Um, he was also in the corporate world. So again, he was an executive for large companies like McDonald's, Gillette, etc. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. But so that, been, that didn't really put you off that he pursued the entrepreneurial career and it didn't work out for him. No, he all, I think it's also wrong timing, different yeah. things. He had the first Spanish-speaking marketing agency in Texas. Wow. In yeah. 1992, I think, 93. Um, and then you now you see all, everything in Spanish in, in kind of the south of, of the U.S. Yeah. You go on orbits and you'll find a Spanish thing. Right. Um, and in his head, there was a, there was a market for that. Mm -hmm. um, again, that was a bit too early. Um, so again, interesting, but no, it doesn't put me off. And as, ever since I was a kid, I was looking for, I, I have my first ventures were when I was like, you know, seven years old selling drawings to kids and different things. So uh, I don't know. I've always looked for opportunities. So it was basically in your DNA from early on. You could say so or that, or I'm very, just very, <laughs> you know, <laughs> eager to try new things. Right. And then you actually founded the next venture in 2014, you founded Spark Labs together with uh, Stefano, Stefano, first yeah, of all, <laughs> where did you actually meet your co-founders? Um, so Spark Labs is an interesting venture, so to say, because it's it's part of, it's a lab at ETH, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, but I had just come back from, from Stanford, and I was very inspired by the D-School in Stanford, uh, which was this place where different professors and different students from different departments came together and solved challenges yeah. with a very human-centered approach. Um, and I came back to Switzerland and amazing engineering, amazing science, amazing universities. Right. But where do people come together for that? So we said, okay, how, how do we, how we start something like that? And uh, we started at EPFL. Next year, Florian, uh, who helped me set everything up, he contacted me. And we started at ETH as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's now been quite a long time. And we have about three, 400 students going through different programs every year at ETH. Wow. Um, very proud of that. Again, it's fully focused on on our students at, at right. university. It's been entirely self-funded. We would look for companies to help us fund different things. Um, it, it's been kind of, for me, it's a, education is a passion, which kind of brings us all the way to Spark Academy. Absolutely. I, I always really like that. But we'll, we'll get there in a second. Before we do so, I also want to learn a bit more because turning research into a business, basically, that can be a very challenging thing. Again, you know, you, you see great examples at Stanford and other universities, especially in the US, they're really good at that. Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult for us here to do that in Switzerland? 
think it's a communication problem. Okay. Um, so Spark Labs, again, it's set up at ETH, at EPFL, at the end only at ETH. And mm-hmm. then from there, companies start asking us, could we do more of that research kind of uh, as a commercial thing? Yeah. So we set up SparkWorks, which is another company that we started afterwards. Um, and it was more of a consulting thing. Mm-hmm. And the Spark Academy is also very research-based. Now, myself having done a PhD here and a bit of an odd academic path, but still going down the rabbit hole, the number one thing we're not prepared to do um, within that world is to communicate what we do to different audiences. Mm-hmm. We're trained to do it to the academic audience and uh, sure. and nowhere do you get more brutal feedback than in an academic conference. But uh, Entrepreneurs complain a lot about getting feedback from VCs. VCs are like, you know, care bears compared to <laughs> <laughs> They academics. rip you apart, oh, the academics. Academics will rip you apart and then they'll be very happy about it, but they, they yeah. will destroy you and like sniff at you with their intellectual superiority. Yeah. Um, and it's good because again, that, that's... Actually, I think it's a good thing, uh, and I'm not. Right. Um, but it can be tough. It can be very, very tough. But at the end of the day, that actually helps you improve the work you're doing. Right. So I think it's a great yeah. model. Yeah. They're not kind at all, <laughs> in that sense. If you're looking for kind feedback, do not go to an academic conference. Sure. Um, then again, you're very trying to speak to these people. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the first slide decks I made for an academic conference. Uh, my supervisor, Chris Tucci, told me it's too colorful. You need to kind of, <laughs> otherwise people will think you're not serious enough. Yeah, so again, right. very, very different. Uh, Absolutely. And I think what happens as an academic is then you're so focused on communicating to this crowd mm-hmm. that you lose focus of, okay, what's the value that I'm doing to this crowd and that crowd and that right. crowd? Yeah. And I think we need to get better at that to be able to showcase the value of what we're doing yeah. to different, basically, segments. Uh, if we can do that successfully... Then, you know, those are the superstar academics, sure. which you hear about now. Adam Grant, for example. Right. Again, yeah. everybody knows this guy, yeah. but he's very good at kind of, you know, tidbits of information as well as he's very well published both in books as well as academic journals. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly something that you tackle with your students that you work with these days, right? Yes, absolutely. Try to get them to kind of be very clear communicators and understand their audience. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the third company, Spark Academy, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you actually first got interested in the corporate innovation topic? Well, again, that started through Spark Labs. We had companies giving us challenge for the students, mm-hmm. which students would solve, and companies thought it was very interesting to have this type of engagement. Right. Later on, they would ask, hey, could we do more of this, which we cannot do in the university anymore, so we set sure. up a consulting company. Yeah. And then we realized that as an innovation consultant, you spend at least half the time with your client training them, educating them on the basics of the process you're going through, which is not the best use of their time nor yours. Absolutely. Um, So education is actually really, really important within the innovation space for large corporates because you need multidisciplinary teams. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that's going to go out of the market without someone from marketing, someone from manufacturing, someone from accounting. These people live in different silos. They have different languages. They have different everything. Mm -hmm. And now you bring them together. You tell them, okay, guys, work together on this. Tricky. So getting them on the same page is hard. Um, and if we solve that via education, education for us is a tool towards transformation, towards innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had one customer who was facing this challenge and asked us, could you design a program for us mm-hmm. that's global? So therefore yeah. online or unless right. you fly consultants all over the world. 
but most importantly, measurable. Can you actually certify, validate that this person learned mm-hmm. what he or she is supposed to learn? And that's when consulting companies go like, oh, well, I don't want to come into that. <laughs> um, yeah. And when you're teaching how to code online, mm-hmm. it's very clear whether the person learned how to code or not because of compiles is compiled. Yeah. When you're teaching something like creativity, difficult to measure. It becomes a little harder. So we need to find a very different type of approach. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of the the challenge we started with through this one customer at SparkWorks, who then set us off a journey to set up Spark Academy a couple of years later. And how do you exactly do that? Because I imagine, you know, measuring this creative part, the education part, that is really difficult, a bit like similar to the challenges you solved before, but just a different challenge. So how do you solve it with, with your offering, with your product, basically? So you need to think about learning not as a point in time. Mm-hmm. It's not a snapshot, but it's a movie. It's an experience. Right. And any experience can be designed. I mean, we learned that within design thinking within innovation, right? You can sure. design an experience, yeah. user experience design. Now, the question is, what do you want this individual to go through? And what are the things you want him or her to take from every step along the way? Mm-hmm. If you take a very, very granular approach to that and you insert specific skills or micro skills that you want this person to to take with them right. and then you want them to reinforce them mm-hmm. through something like a memory skill, then you want them to practice it through something from an exercise with their peers. You want them to apply it through a use of a template. Then you can basically go back in cycles and see, okay, was this one micro skill that I was aiming to teach here? Mm-hmm being used, applied, going through the entire framework of learning throughout that journey. Wow. So essentially, we've engineered our program in a way where we can slice and dice every single little piece Mm -hmm. and see where every individual is getting stuck, where where they're actually doing better, etc. So it's a very, very data-driven approach, um, which allows us to put key metrics into every individual's progress throughout that experience. And exactly that fulfills the customer's request that we received back then. It, it does. <laughs> uh, and it opens a lot of other possibilities, which is kind of what got us excited to. It wasn't just about corporate innovation or corporate mm-hmm. learning, but it was about all of learning. Yeah. How can we make learning more effective? How can we change the way we, we approach education as a whole? Right. And I think we don't have enough data for that because we didn't measure any of it before. Yeah. So if you design it like we did, and then you start measuring at that level of granularity, maybe Mm -hmm. we find new interesting things that allow us to create a more meaningful and effective learning experience. Right. So I can tell, like, this goes so much further beyond pure online learning. It's really about having the impact and training for the skills and the knowledge that the people need. We want people to be able to apply these things more effectively. Imagine if a medical student didn't have to spend 10 years in medical school. Who came up with 10 years? I, I don't know. Yeah. Why is university five? Who came right. up with these? And they've been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. What if a medical student can be perfectly trained in two years? I, I don't know. Of course. Well, whatever it is, can we do it better? Yeah. And can this person be more effectively trained on specific yeah. things where he or she's going to apply over time? Mm-hmm. That would change the way we see the world today. Lots. Yeah. Who are your customers today and what's the business model behind it? So we have large corporates uh, such as Siemens, Cargill, 
companies of that size, and we have learners in 61 different countries mm-hmm. and all sorts of industries. I think Cargill is an interesting example because they're a commodity trading company. Yeah. So we have learners who do salt to the salt market. Right. <laughs> it's a whole industry. It's, yeah. Uh, chicken feed <laughs> and cocoa. Yeah. Uh, so again, very, very interesting, and they're very looking diverse. to innovate in these industries, right? Yeah. Uh, we have Siemens with you know building systems, and they're thinking. Of, so it's very, very different kind of applications, mm-hmm. and yet the tools are the same. Yeah. I can give you a t- screwdriver and teach you how to use a screwdriver, and you can mm-hmm. apply it as a carpenter, you can apply it as a electrician, but it's still a screwdriver. Right. And I had a call earlier today with a potential customer, and they were asking like, "Oh, but is this applied to ours?" Like, well, we have banking learners. We have people in all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. Because, again, we're trying to teach them to think of this as a tool that they can apply. Right. Not as a copy-paste, this is how we're yeah. going to use it. Right. And your business model, I guess, is then probably license-based per user of, of your platform, or how do you do that? We have two different types of business models. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is a business school business model, where we charge per participant for different levels of certification. Right. Uh, it's a lot higher fee. We charge between 3500 to almost 20000 per person to go through our program. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is more of, um, I would say, an engagement-based yearly fee, a SaaS, mm-hmm. plus an in-app purchases. Okay. What do I mean with this? Our number one thing as a learning experience is that we keep people engaged a lot. So yeah. 88 to 94% of the people who start our program mm-hmm whole program, which is a long program, finish it. Wow, that, okay. that's super high. Which is super, super high yeah. compared to, you know, the 8 to 14% you would get on normal e-courses. Crazy. So what we're telling companies is, okay, you pay us a yearly fee as L&D, mm-hmm. and based on the number of employees you have. Yeah. And if we do not achieve this level of engagement, next year you'll pay us less. Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of success-based, it's right. an engagement. And that's very right. interesting for... For people in learning and development, because yeah. nobody's got the <laughs> say, nobody's willing to do that at the moment. Yeah. And then we have the different courses, which add up into the entire certification, mm-hmm. more of a piecemeal. So then participants can take them one at a time mm-hmm. and add them up as they go along. Yeah. And then it's maybe not the L&D who pays us, but the different departments based on what they want these got people it. to learn at different times. Yeah. So there it's a, it's more of a smaller fee from the corporate central right. and then more distributed yeah. kind of, um, for individuals. Now I'm just really curious. I mean, this engagement rate, this is mind-blowing. This, that's a game changer. How, how do you achieve that? How do you get to that high level? A lot of, well, first the, the neuroscience research at the beginning helps us put together the right cohorts of learners, mm-hmm. cohort-based learning. Yeah. And we need to make sure that the people who are in this cohort, number one, are kind of work well together. Number two, have the right level of motivation. Mm-hmm. The right, forget about level, have the right motivation. Yeah. We've all been in a team where someone's sitting in the corner with his arms crossed and like, yeah, right. I'm just here because my boss said me, I really don't care. Yeah, or think about group work back at university, exactly. right? It is scientifically proven that this person sitting in the corner brings everybody down no matter how yeah. motivated they are. So we need to make sure that the people are there because they want to be there. Mm-hmm. Then throughout the program, we use a lot of behavioral science to keep people engaged along the way. Mm-hmm. And the behavioral science is a very interesting area because it's for years and people think about it for marketing in different areas. Right. But as kind of now in the Obama White House, they had basically behavioral scientists 
designing different government basically services in order to get people more engaged. Wow. Yeah. And there's little tweaks and changes that you can do to nudge mm -hmm. people towards making kind of certain decisions that help, help, helps keep them motivated. Right. Do you have examples how you do that in your product? Different things. Uh, but for example, one I think is how do you refer to people? Mm -hmm. Calling people, we call them catalysts. Yeah. And giving people this label of change maker, of a catalyst, that already sets them in their head as like, this is kind of... I want to be that person. Right. People like the Red Cross or UNICEF, etc. They're like, oh, you're a donor. You're a lifesaver. Exactly. So when you get that, you're like, yeah, I am. Yeah, I should keep on helping this. Yeah. So, I am important, right? That's the exactly. feeling. So that's, again, yeah. these are little nudges here and there. Yeah. Um, I think a second thing is, for example, how do you structure, again, that experience as we talked about it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of courses, the first course that the learners do is really, really hard, really yeah. long, very in-depth. It's very painful. Yeah. The second one is on purpose, a little shorter, a little sweeter. Yeah. So you want to be able to design how their stress and management level of throughout the whole experience so that they do the first one, like, dude, this was really hard. And then by the yeah. second one, like, okay, this wasn't so bad. And the third one is a little harder. Yeah. And then you want the last one within that series mm -hmm to be really nice. Yeah. So everybody gets like the highest ratings to the last one. Right. But again, it's been designed that way because yeah. you let them go with a, a sense like, oh, this was, this was really useful. The first one yeah. was two, but we front-ended a lot of content there. Right. So again, these are little different bits and pieces and it's sprinkled all throughout yeah. the program in order to keep people basically at a high level of motivation. Motivation is the number one predictor of success in education. And if you can keep it at a certain threshold, you will get people to to go through that absolutely painful experience. Learning is not again it's yeah. like oh I love learning. <laughs> it, it, take, it takes effort. It, it's absolutely. hard. That that is so like you know mind blowing because there's so much research I can tell that like basically goes into this to make that product happen. So that's really remarkable. I also wondered the first mm -hmm. part that you said to bring the right people together. How do you actually assess them? Do you do interviews with them? Do you survey them? Or how can you actually check for their motivation? Because I can think that's a very interesting aspect, not only for learning, but also for so many other aspects in life. So we have what we call the spark check, which is, again, built on, on Stefano, my business partner, yeah. a professor at ETH uh, research. And we look at motivation, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. but we also look at two different cognitive, basically, areas, which is ambidexterity, which is your ability to switch between basically exploration and exploitation. Mm -hmm. If you think of uh, Osterwalder talks a lot about, yeah. about this. And the most innovative people are not those who are hardcore explorers. Right. You do not define innovative as a person who's always exploring. You define innovative as someone who also gets stuff done. Yeah. So it's the person who actually manages to balance between those two sides who are kind of considered as innovators. So we have a cognitive test that allows us to measure mm -hmm. that. The second thing is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is huge. There's a lot of different areas into that. Uh, a lot of people think like, oh, you should love yourself. Uh, that's not the part we're interested in. <laughs> and that's also very complicated. We look at how good are you at assessing other people's emotions mm -hmm. and then acting on them, which are actually two different pillars. Yeah. 
nowadays we usually have a lot of Zoom calls and we're always just looking at a screen. It's even harder actually right. to understand, okay, are people engaged? Yeah. A good professor who's giving a lecture mm-hmm. should be able to adapt his or her lecture based on the facial reactions, the posture of the people sitting in front of him or her. Okay, that, that, yeah. That's what a good professor would do. Absolutely. A good presenter would do that. Yeah. Know, know your audience doesn't just mean, oh, I know where they're coming from, but are they getting it? What, what triggers them? Yeah. That is really important, number one, for innovation. Mm-hmm. Think of a client or someone you innovate to. Sure. But it's also really important with teamwork. Yeah. People who are very good at understanding other people's emotions are better team members, especially when you have a very, very high kind of high engagement team. So we check for those things. And I think what's interesting about these two areas is these are cognitive things that are sitting on neuroplastic parts of the brain, mm-hmm. which means they can be improved. They can be trained. And for us, it's not about selecting, but it's about developing and knowing where okay. you can develop. Yeah. And where can you improve by budding up with someone who's better on this? Mm-hmm. So we try to give everybody a clear profile of where they sit and help them improve at the same time, be transparent with their team. Like, look, I'm not really good at this part, um, but you know that I'm not, and then we can work better together. Okay. And I think that's the type of high-performance teams that we need, where, where they're mm-hmm. honest and transparent with each other, where they're good and where they're not, and how can they get better. Well, I, this is just so mind-blowing for me because I love that these little details on how you can then, you know, sort of assess and, and also bring the right people together. I mean, great. Uh, we're working on it, but our, our dream would be to be able to help entrepreneurs or companies yeah. think of, okay, which is the right profile of a team? Mm-hmm. To the end of the day, a team is the unit of analysis of any new development within a university, sure. within a corporate, with anything. Yeah. What is the right team to come together to work on X challenge? Not just on based on technical skills. Well, oh, we need a developer and we need a sure. you know, marketeer. No, yes, you need that, but that's the basic. That's that's the basics. Actually, the hard yeah. thing is the soft skills. Yeah. And what is the right combination of soft skills, based on the level of innovativeness of this project and the combination of participants? This talk is supported by Small PDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. And I guess the more and more clients you work with, the more data you actually gather to make that possible one day. Exactly. That's kind of part of our growth flywheel. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're building on neuroscience, behavioral science, and data science. Mm-hmm. And the data part is essential. And the more clients we get, the more learners we get, the better we're going to get, the, the more, you know. Of course. But of course, interesting it gets for everybody. You also didn't build that platform, that offering overnight, right? No, we did not. So <laughs> you probably started due to your first experience, you know, with your startup during your PhD, with more early validation, et cetera. So how do you actually validate that idea? I know there was the customer's request, the customer's mm-hmm. need, but you still have to go out there and test it. How do you do that? So if you think of everything I just talked about, it's an entire system, mm-hmm. which I think startups these days are told, focus on the one thing. You do this one little thing very well, and, and that works for some things, 
but we're not designing the Facebook chat. We're designing the Facebook, right? Yeah. And again, investors don't really like to think about you designing the whole thing, but that's a different story. Um, and if you think of this entire system, then you look at, okay, what are the key things that make it or break it? Um, we realized, for example, that one of the key things was assessing. So there's really good content online that already exists. The question is, did anybody actually go through the content? Right. And did they actually learn anything from it? Yeah. The moment you let people know that there's going to be a hard test at the end, you see a spike in how much time <laughs> they spend on the content. Yeah. Okay. And then the assessment itself, you can learn different things. So we we had to slice and dice in different aspects that were important mm -hmm. at the moment we were at. Yeah. Um, and that allows us to basically validate little bits and pieces as we went along. Um, now we have a, a full system Right, and that allows us to change things in, in a different scale. But back then, it was from zero to a hundred, and we had nothing. <laughs> so, kind of, it's just how do you time out? What do you test when? I can't say that we were always right in terms of what we should have <laughs> tested. Well, I mean, that's normal, right? But overall, that's allowed us to learn yeah. every single step of the way as we went along. And I imagine also, you know, just building the courses and the material, the actual content. That's also very time consuming. How do you test that? Because there are some great content pieces out there. We didn't. Um, I think that was one of uh, kind of key challenges. If you think of a, of a learning program, um, you can't always be the expert in everything. Sure. And if you pretend to be an expert in everything, well, nobody's going to believe you. And it's yeah. probably not true anyways. So how do you find the best content from different parts and then bring it together? Yeah. And then what is your value proposition? Is it the content? If your value proposition today is content, you're screwed. There's no way you're going to... There, there's amazing content for free online. No. I'm not going to say this podcast is one of them. Not mine, maybe one of the others. <laughs> but it's free and it's there. It's for the taking, right? Right. The question is, was it? what is it part of? And what are you kind of getting out of it? And how are you using it afterwards? Yeah. So for us, the challenge is how do we basically build this entire system, bits and pieces, and where we add value and at the same time get paid for it. Um, and I think there I took a great lesson from one of my, let's say, classmates at Stanford through, it was Launchpad is the name of the accelerator at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And this guy essentially, he prototyped and tested his, his idea by using what he considered to be his competitor's product and then adding a service around it. So he basically wrapped his competitor's product <laughs> and then sold it for more. <laughs> and once he had sold it to 10 different companies, then he was like, okay, people actually want this. And then he yeah. went out and built it. Um, John, John Wallman, um, he has a billion dollar startup these days, 10 years ago. So for us, it was like, okay, do we need to create content? No, there's great content out there. Mm -hmm. That's not the key of the measurability was what they were asking us yeah. for. So we basically took third-party content mm -hmm. and then we wrapped it around. And we started doing this email-based and paper-based. So we would send them the assessments and PowerPoint. They would send it back. We would grade. We, we used to do everything manually. And then bit in piece, we started changing different parts. When we got to the point where we could no longer clearly measure that learning experience mm -hmm. because the content wasn't ours, that's when we started to yeah. decided to start engineering that content for our purposes. But we had already validated a hundred different points before that. Yeah. Talking about the right MVP setup. We we barely we really, really focused kind of on this very, very lean approach. 
and it's been two years since Sparkademy as as we know it exists. Mm -hmm. And I was just earlier talking to to, to my friend, to my colleague Daniel, about it. It's like two years ago, we were literally selling third party content, and they were wrapping around with a test right. for 10x the value. Yeah. But I mean, look how far we've gotten from then. <laughs> exactly. But that's the right way to start to validate and then learn and build the stuff that matters for you. Absolutely. You said before investors don't like that you don't have this killer laser focus on one thing. So you're completely bootstrapped these days, mm -hmm. completely self funded. What are some tough trade offs that you had to make along the way to stay that way? Well, uh, growing exponentially is hard when you're bootstrapped. Mm -hmm. Again, unless you're. Again, you have something online where people can click in and right. but again, in a B2B business, forget about it. Um, so that's harder. You also need to really focus your resources on specific aspects of things. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you look at the current environment where all these very, very well-funded startups are now laying people off. Right. We don't have that problem. We'll be around after this crisis and the next because yeah. <laughs> we're profitable. <laughs> so, yeah. again, and if we would have gotten, you know, three, four million funding last year, they would have been pushing us to spend it mm -hmm. for artificial growth. So, and I'm not saying that's not good in certain aspects, but I think there's sure. a balance. And investors frequently take a tick the box approach mm -hmm. and it has to fit exactly within their frame. And I've realized right. that now talking to several potential investors because we're, we're funding, ra uh, raising funds right now. Mm -hmm. Actually, for the next kind of quarter, we're really looking to raise funds to grow. Yeah. Um, and it's a very different type of, um, let's say, pitch for investors than it is for clients sure. and for different people. Yeah. Um, so again, it's, it's getting the, the right, right message at the right time. Now, looking back, how do you wish that you ever had taken on funding earlier yeah. than planning Absolutely now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And okay. if I don't get funding now, probably I'll say, oh, it was great I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's always better with hindsight. Yeah. Um, but we got this far without funding, mm -hmm. and we've managed to validate a lot of different things, and we've managed to actually, again, create a system. I think the problem with investors is like, oh, focus on this. And we had that yeah. a, a year ago or something. It's like, just, just make an app and make sure that the app works. Like, no, <laughs> this right. is not what we're doing. We're creating an experience. And experience requires more than just this one thing. Right. Like, oh, just yeah. take the cognitive thing. And maybe he or she was right. That could be the case. Sure. Yeah. We'll probably never my find objective out. is to transform education. Mm -hmm. And you do not transform education by getting a e-whiteboard. You do not transform education yeah. by getting a better signing process. These little bits and pieces are useless yeah. in the grand scheme of things. These are tools, but not a, a new system. Exactly. And, and you need to think of the thing as a whole yeah. and how does that work? If you want to create it from, from scratch, you need to basically create the foundation and right. you need to, do, to approach this differently. Right. This is not something most investors are very interested in. It's, there's too many risk points. And again, I understand, I, I'm an investor myself and I understand that, like, sure. yeah, this, this requires. It's a different hat that you're wearing, right? Exactly. You also need to be very passionate about what we're doing. Yeah. If someone is literally just looking for a return investment, this, net, this yeah. is probably not something they would invest in because it has too many risk points. Mm -hmm. But to me, building something, you know, bootstrapping it, that's like the, the biggest entrepreneurial challenge that you can solve, basically, because then you have to really build a sustainable business that works. Well, is anybody willing to pay for it to begin exactly. with? That's it. If the answer is no, then there's no desirability. There's no business. We talk yeah. about you know innovation, <laughs> and desirability, feasibility, and you know, and um, 
technical feasibility, desirability, and viability. <laughs> Again, can you build the, yes. Does anybody actually want this? Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone's willing to pay for it, Again, another lesson from from my time at Stanford is go sell, you know, pre-sales. Yeah, we yeah. haven't built it yet. Like, you say, hey, exactly. you will get it in three months, like, you know, the, yeah. like uh, going online. That's a concept that it's like really, really strange for some people. Yeah. It's like, well, am I willing to give you a hundred bucks now and you tell me you're going to deliver in six months? Why not? If it's something I really want, of course. Sure, here's the money. Yeah. Otherwise, no chance. Exactly. Yeah. So then if they're not willing to give it to you now, what's the thought they're going to give yeah. it to you later? Exactly. And of course, to be able to survive as a bootstrap company, you have to make sales. Obviously, <laughs> you sell to large companies. So how do you do that? Because for many entrepreneurs out there, this B2B sales is something really challenging. You know, long sales cycles, many people involved, not moving forward. How do you do that? How did you find a solution to that challenge? Well, I've been doing B2B sales. Interesting, as an innovation manager, a large corporate, you're basically doing B2B sales already. Right. Nobody wants to think about that. Innovation manager sounds like a very sexy job. It's really a glorified politician. Um, (laughs) Because you will not get anywhere as an internal innovation manager without, you know, getting internal stakeholders to to want to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. So you need to sell to them. So that was kind of training in sales number one. (laughs) Um, then I, I worked with a startup that did you know, blockchain type product for, uh, for treasuries. I have nothing to do with finance, by the way. I was mm-hmm. selling tools for treasury. And there I realized a couple of different things. Number one is the value of what you're selling. If you go to a large company that's in the billions of dollars and you sell them something for 10K, forget about it. They're never going to pay attention to you. Yeah. And if they're interested in those 10K thing, it's not the right person. You're never going to scale that. So... It needs to seem like high value, high benefit for them. And the benefit or the value can actually be either you show them how they can make more money or how they can save money, right? Both. But it's still just the cost of what you're selling of signals course. so much. Yeah. So never go to a company and sell anything worth less than 100K. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not, they're like, you're gone. Right. So again, think about it. You need to really price it properly and you need to justify why it's cost, but that's a different story. So yeah. pricing is really important. Number two is, yeah. can this person actually make that happen? Mm-hmm. The problem with, again, corporate sales is you need to get to the right buyer. And the right buyer has the budget <laughs> yeah. and the freedom to do it. And that's not always very clear because it's like, oh, everybody has a you know, manager of this, manager of that. Yeah, right. So finding the right person do they blink or not when you mention big numbers? No. And that person needs to have it, you know, you need to be at least 10% of their overall budget. Mm-hmm. If you're more, then the likelihood of them taking a risk with you isn't True. ever high. So yeah. think of, of who you're selling to. And third, again, do you have, going back to your initial point, do you have something that actually creates kind of 10 times larger value than what you're selling mm-hmm. or allows them to save so one of our earliest clients, he calculated that they got a 14x return on investment after working with us for a year in 2019. Wow. Excuse me, his calculation, not mine. Yeah, of course. And yeah. they did a, after new kind of new sales and mm-hmm. savings that they achieved from the teams that we trained. Great. Okay, so it's output. Yeah. Is that something that I can measure myself? It's that's a harder story. Of course. But they need to perceive it that way. There was a 10x. Yeah. Kind of return. Yeah, then it's a no-brainer. Then you're also willing to make the investment, of course, exactly. right? Because it's a good one. Okay. How the, mm-hmm. does that client actually calculate the return on investment? Because that's something that you need to often do to show the value to the potential yeah. 
company we want to work with. I think that's in, in our case, that's hard because again, this, this was our first pilot client and he already had the level of maturity where he actually had teams that we had trained working on new projects. Mm -hmm. So he could, there was a easier to connect it to the output yeah. with other clients. Their motivation is one of our clients. I won't specify who, but their focus was getting better, let's say, employee retention and better kind of what was the NPS score for them working there, right? Yeah. And they were very, very demoralized and people were really not doing well in this team. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to say, okay, we want a kind of a, a mindset change. Yeah. So their goal was mindset change which they achieved and they're kind of, they're on our second year. So, so yeah. they are very happy with that, but that was their goal. Mm -hmm. And then they realized, oh, this also has education. Oh, it's also helping us save on consultants. There's other benefits, but that was their main goal. Mm -hmm. So different companies have different objectives. Right. The question is, which one are you focusing on? Yeah. And if you're very, very focused on, oh, we do this and this is a benefit, you might not realize that you actually provide different benefits for different people. And sure. we go back to the beginning of our story. Can you basically position your PhD to persona A, B, C, D? Can you communicate it? Yeah. Why is it interesting for them in their story? Uh, I think what you just shared here, these are some really important and valuable B2B sales lessons. So I love it because <laughs> I'm into B2B my sales myself. I, I love these points. And it's very much yeah. about understanding the pain points of the customers and then positioning your solution as the problem-solving thing that they need to purchase to have the return and the problem solved. Absolutely. And the last thing I would say is credibility. And that credibility yeah. is your reputation is is the number one thing you need to take care of. Yeah. Never overpromise and underdeliver. The other way around. And find ways, find clues or triggers mm -hmm. that showcase your credibility. Yeah. In my case, it's my education, the things I've done, etc. So that sure. gives us kind of credibility like, okay, yeah. um, my partner is a professor at ETH. That helps. Absolutely. Right. Um, Everybody has different ways of, of showcasing that credibility and giving the other person confidence. Okay, this person sort of seems to know what he or she is doing. Yeah. And they're always taking a risk. When, you're, when they're dealing with a small company, they're always taking a risk. Yeah. Um, are you willing to find those kind of really, really entrepreneurial individuals who yeah. are willing to take the risk to begin with? You know, now you just shared that information. I think it's very valuable to, if you don't have any clients yet, that your education, PhD, then professor from ETH, that this really helps people to trust you, to build trust. But now looking back, you are an entrepreneur today, you know. Um, would you go back and still do your PhD to become an entrepreneur? Or do you think you could also do it without it? Well, I did not do the PhD to be an entrepreneur. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, I did a PhD for two reasons. Uh, number one, because I always loved teaching and um, and I had a very nomad lifestyle since I was a child. So in my mind is I can always teach no matter where I am. Mm -hmm. If I have a PhD and I end up for some reason in Malaysia, I can always go to the local university and knock the door and like, hey, right. uh, do you have? So you can, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's something that covered basis. The second thing was, it was the easiest way for me to stay in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And this is not a very basically... Nobody likes talking about that, uh, especially not here. Right. But I'm Mexican and you know, third country, national, et cetera. It's difficult. Um, I had option A, go to a Philip Morris or Nestle, which is like mm -hmm. around EPFL, which are the companies that will hire foreigners right. um, or do a PhD. And I, I had an amazing professor, so I was interested in that. But if it wasn't for that, then I would have had to either... I had a couple of different options abroad, but if I wanted to stay here, it was 
work for Nestle or do the PhD. Yeah. Um, and I chose a PhD because I'm like, okay, you know, it can't hurt. Of course. Yeah. And in when we were pitching for the first startup, mm -hmm. I had a very critical, um, let's say, investor who says, why are you wasting your time with a PhD? And I told him, well, you want the short answer or the long answer? He's like, well, benefit of time, give me the short answer. Because yeah. I wouldn't be here pitching to you if I wasn't doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the realities of, of basically the environment we live in, you make do. I did not have the luxury right. to be an entrepreneur and not be a PhD. Yeah. If you're from here, then you, you might have it. For me, it wasn't an option. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people that I've, I've met them mm -hmm. that are on the same boat. Yeah. From your first-hand experience, mm -hmm. do you think that Switzerland as a country should change that, that law to make it easier to stay here, to then also pursue your entrepreneurial career, not needing a corporate employment that gets you through that process or doing a PhD? I don't know. I mean, it's easy for me to say no because I made it this far. So, Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's also something about the the ability to be able to do a couple of things in parallel. I've always mm -hmm. done them myself. Yeah. Um, did I have the best PhD possible? Absolutely not. I finished my PhD in three and a half years, which is very, very short, actually. Wow. Um, yeah. And I did it in parallel when I was doing and, and my professor knew this is not something uh, kind of I was doing undercover. Sure. Um, but I managed to balance those two things out. I know a lot of PhDs who are drowning <laughs> in like, so again, and, and it might be because they are drowning because they have a lot of work or they might be because it's all subjective, right? Yeah. But if you're an entrepreneur and you can't handle a PhD, then I'm sorry, your, your likelihood of handling actual entrepreneurship is not going to be very high. Right. So I think you need to survive. You need to be able to, to fight your way through the system mm -hmm. because that's the only way you're going to build that resilience. True. And you've got people in the U.S. working three jobs with two kids at home yeah. to make ends meet. If they can do that, why, you know, what things you're going to make the next Jeff Bezos if you can't even work outside nine to five. Absolutely. So uh, again, that goes against this whole work-life balance, et cetera. But again, it's the, what, what are your objectives? And sure. it's perfectly respectable to yeah. go either way. Be uh, willing to put actions behind your words and, and ambitions. And there's always a way of, of, of doing it. Again, I, I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed. Uh, my entire life, uh, things have worked out for me. But I've also worked very hard for it. Of course. And I think that's yeah. that's something anybody can do. It's it's attitude. Yeah. Um, you can wash cars, babysit, you know, bartend, wash dishes. I did yeah. all of the above while I was studying here, <laughs> and that's how I survived. Um, yeah. I think we can do it. Uh, it's a very impressive story to see how you found your way into entrepreneurship and also to stay here in Switzerland. I mean, just big, big respect for that. Again, you do what you need to do <laughs> to get where you want to get. Right. And again, I think that's the basics of entrepreneurship. If you're not yeah. willing to do that, then you're probably not in the right job, my friend. Of course. <laughs> now, you've basically trained people from all over the world, um, 11 plus different industries, more than 10 different business areas. And of course, now we also wonder, what, what are your next plans with Spark Academy? Like, where do you want to take the company? What are your ambitions with it? So I mentioned earlier that we're, we've started now looking for, for investors. Yeah. And it's a different type of investor we're looking at because it's not, I wouldn't consider a seed or a series. It doesn't really tick the boxes. Yeah. Um, but we're raising a couple million to be able to basically scale what we have. Mm -hmm. um, we need more learners because we need more data. 
Sure. So that, that helps us actually yeah. kind of, so most of that investment goes into kind of sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. We've hired someone for sales in the US who's doing a very, very good job and Great. we're aiming at scaling that as well. Um, which again is weird. We, we're a Swiss startup yeah, with clients <laughs> in the US. It's, we're, <laughs> so we, we want to scale that now. That will actually help us get closer to our goal of this kind of effective learning for everybody. Yeah. I feel you're just getting started, you know, with, you know, more clients, more data in, and then you build the next massive thing. Uh, that's, that's kind of our, we're really going, we want to go big or go home. And this is kind of yeah. the year where we're kind of really pushing for that. We've built the foundation and I think yeah. we're, we're at a good place too. Now I also wonder, what is your personal ambition? You know, of course you want to see the company succeed, but on a very personal level, what are your ambitions and goals? I've had a good couple of years. Um, last year I exited an investment I had. I also sold uh, another company of mine. So kind of, that's good. Um, I have three children at home. Um, and I enjoy, I, I spent this morning, I, it was today, this morning was daddy day. Great. Um, so I managed to balance kind of these things out. And I think I'm putting in another three, four years to really see that, that growth wherever life might take us. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll start kind of refocusing those priorities um, towards friends and family. For me, that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, the logical next step. Then, yeah. Again, I'm 36. I'm turning 37 in a couple months. Um, and my mind was kind of by 40, <laughs> which is a very, very. I, I understand that's a very, very nice place to be in, but I've worked for that. Um, Absolutely. I I lost my father when he was 57, and I was 17. Um, and my goal was kind of, okay, I want to front end that really, really hard kind of work to be able to then kind of do things a little differently than he did. So that's my, <laughs> that's a very strong motivation. Beautiful. I, I, I push and I think about it every day and, and it doesn't mean I'm not enjoying my family and my kids now. I, I do it more than ever. Um, but kind of, that's kind of the, the milestone I have in my head. That freedom to be there, to have time with fat for family and friends. All the time, and that's. Yeah. Well, I'll do different things again. It's not going to want to sit down and sure. <laughs> smell the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would last more than a couple of weeks doing yeah. that. I, I get bored on vacation, right. um, but can do things that I could actually kind of uh, involve them more in and, and kind of enjoy that even more. Fantastic. Hey, Alan. To wrap up today's episode, we also prepared some rapid fire questions for you. So either give you different options to choose from, or one simple question you have to answer in one sentence. Sounds good. You ready? Mm-hmm. First one, Mexico or Switzerland? Switzerland. Oh, that's a clear choice? Yes. Why? Um, I love Mexico. I love the culture. I love the food. I love the people. Um, But I think as a person who's lived in all sorts of different countries, you're never going to have it all. And I think that becomes very clear. So my advice to people who are moving around and trying to figure out where to live is think of the top three priorities in your life Mm -hmm. and be happy you have those. And Switzerland covers my top three priorities, and I'm very, very happy to be here. And I'm very proud to contribute to to this country that has given me so much and to the environment I'm in. Amazing. What would you be doing if you were not an entrepreneur? (laughs) Um, I'd be a teacher. I thought so. What spark check type are you? I know you have these different check types that you work with. So what type are you? And you probably also can explain what it exactly means. Um, I am high on the ambidexterity part. 
I am low on emotional intelligence. I would have not expected that. No. Um, out of those two sides of the emotional intelligence uh, that I talked about, of detecting and acting, yeah. I'm quite good at the acting on. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at detecting when people are not okay. kind of um, within a team setting. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the business partners that I've had throughout the years, yeah. which is kind of key to the success I've had, is mm-hmm. having good business partners, by the way. Right. Um, they know that and they've supported. So we've made good you know, kind of balance. Yeah, in those exactly. I think that, that's the key. You can't always be good at everything. Of course. But you need to find other people who who you can work with yeah. to, to support you where you're not so good. Exactly. Bringing the missing parts. Exactly. Where do you actually go to think? I like driving. So yeah. I like driving up and down the mountains, <laughs> kind of a mountain pass type thing. And um, for me, driving kind of focuses me on this one thing, which is kind of making sure I don't kill myself. Um, and that kind of frees my my mind. Yeah. And driving in a car, by train, on the bike, what, what's driving? Uh, on the car, kind of, that's my, okay. uh, I've been biking a lot more recently, um, mm-hmm. but I feel, again, it's just, it depends where you are. Sure. But usually kind yeah. of, uh, I drive up and down the mountain passes. Great. Uh, that's kind of uh, something yeah. I like doing. That's like a small meditation right yes. in there, right? <laughs> exactly. The last one for you, from your experience over the past years, what's the number one obstacle that stands between corporations and innovations? I think you could always say mindset, but that's too vague and and uneasy. For me, I think if you're the CEO of a large company, mm-hmm. is how can you create a safe space for innovation to happen? That would be kind of, that safe space is is essential. The number one predictor of success within innovation is context. Please explain that a bit more. If you are a single parent with three jobs and two kids, mm-hmm. the likelihood of you having time to go to the gym is zero, which no. is the same thing with the spark check. You can improve in all these different things, but you need the right space in order to do that. Right. Okay, so again, think about as fitness, physical fitness, as 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 mental fitness. Right. As a company, you need to be able to create the space for employees to be able to, to think outside the box, to feel emotionally safe, to be able to try new things, etc. So creating that space is 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 very very important. How can they proceed in order to do that? Companies like Amazon, if I use an extreme example, have been very very good at allowing all sorts of employees from all sorts of different sites to come up with a concept and kind of present it and, and how does that process go? Yeah. And it's a thing about frameworks, about processes, governance. These are boring stuff within a company, but that creates the space for people to be able to, to be innovative themselves. Um, that, I think that's important because you can have the most entrepreneurial mindset, but if you're in the right context, nothing's going to happen. Nothing yeah. is going to happen. It sounds very easy, but also very difficult to actually get to that point where you have that. I don't think it is, no? actually. Again, it, it's a top-down thing, mm-hmm. which again, it's it's a bottom-up and top-down. But if the top is really focused on that and creating that space, right, it can happen. The problem we face in Europe is it's a very consensus-driven society, mm-hmm. especially Switzerland. Of course, that stifles innovation very, very rapidly because no great thing was ever decided by a committee. Ever. There's no statues for committees out there. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. There's the one individual <laughs> who pushed and shoved hard. Yeah. Okay. So if you're always looking for consensus, you're always going to get bland, middle, 
type mm -hmm. things. And we tell students that the best ideas are the ones that half people love and half the people hate. Right. It brings passion. Yeah. And so again, where can you create the space in order for that to happen? Yeah. Now, we think of the CEO as the all-powerful individual who you know, says, oh, we're going to do this. That's rarely the case in Europe. Mm -hmm. The board, so there's, again, that makes sure. it really, really hard for this stuff to happen. Yeah. So you need to align the entire board in order to do that. The likelihood of your entire board being willing to like, okay, yeah, we're going to spend money on this. and like, eh. So it becomes hard um, to do so. But again, it has to start from the, from the top. Okay. Once you have that, then you can start, you know, and then training people and what we do. Of course. But yeah. we don't work with companies where the top is not, they need to make that yeah. first step. Otherwise, you're doomed to fail. Yeah, there's no point in training yeah. anybody to just then not be able to do anything. Right. That, that's, the, that's just a waste. Yeah. <laughs> wow, so much great stuff to take away from today's episode. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I Lots of success <laughs> and all the best for the future. Thanks for the invite. I hope that was interesting. <laughs> Feel free to reach out for any questions, comments, or... You know, complaints. Perfect. <laughs> Always Thank open you. for that. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.